Well, it's good to be with you again this evening. And before we get into the message for tonight, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for bringing us through a Sabbath day and to the beginning of a new week. And I pray that as we get into the message for this evening, that you would give me the right words to speak and that it would lift our hearts and minds to an understanding of what you need us to understand for this time in earth's history and to prepare us for the times that are ahead of us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So again, our theme for this week is a living sacrifice based on Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And this morning we saw from Romans chapter 12 and 13, as well as Matthew chapter 25, that in God's last day, in time, prophetic church, there is a call for God's people to wake up knowing the time that we are living in. That it is high time to wake out of our sleep and that we see a pure church with five wise and five foolish virgins who have grown weary in their waiting for the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the bridegroom, and we as a church have fallen asleep, but a day is coming in the parable where the midnight cry is going to wake everyone up. And those who have the oil of the Holy Spirit will go forth to proclaim the final message and to meet the bridegroom. And we saw that the oil of the Holy Spirit represents a conversion experience in the daily life. Now, what we're going to look at this evening is the message to the church of Laodicea. And the title of, this, of the message is Laodicea, a lack of sacrifice. Because the call in Romans chapter 12 is to have a church, followers of God who are living sacrifices, who day after day are surrendering their hearts and their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and who are a demonstration of his righteousness to the world. And when you look at the message to Laodicea, we are going to see in the first part of this message that it's a pretty tough message to take. It's a message that comes to us from the faithful and true witness. And before we get into the particulars of this message, let me just say this. As a physician, I see patients every day who have medical problems. And when those patients come to see me in my office or when I see them in the hospital, they expect me to give them an accurate diagnosis of their problem. Because without an accurate diagnosis, their problem is not going to be fixed. If I give them the wrong diagnosis, if I don't tell them the truth, then I'm probably not going to give the right treatment to help them to get better. And when you look at the message to Laodicea, this is a testimony by the faithful and true witness, Jesus Christ himself, that identifies our condition as a people living at the end of time. Now, do you think Jesus is going to tell the truth when he tells us our condition? you better believe that what Jesus says is the truth about us as a people. This is a prophetic message that describes God's last day people. Now, first of all, when you look at the, the message to Laodicea, do you know what the word Laodicea means? Laodicea means a judged people. This is the church of the judgment hour. There's seven churches in the book of Revelation, and you have Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And each one of these churches, while it had a, the, the specific application to the first century of that church in that era, there's also the application to the various 
eras of the Christian church from the first century down to the end of time. For example, the woman Jezebel is described in the church Thyatira. So you know we're talking symbolically because Jezebel had been dead for centuries and was an Old Testament character. So the Laodicean church, it's a church of the judgment hour. And the faithful and true witness is giving a testimony. And just so you know who the faithful and true witness is, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, it says that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. And so when Jesus Christ gives an account of the judgment hour church at the end of time, you know that he is giving a faithful account, just as a good physician should give a faithful account, a true testimony to a patient who comes to their office to receive help. Amen. And so when we look at what Jesus says to us as a church, we should be thankful that we have a loving Savior who tells us what our condition is, so that we can apply the remedy that he offers to us. Aren't you thankful that Jesus, rather than just saying, hey, you're doing fine, don't worry about anything, just be the way you are and I'll come and get you. Aren't you thankful that he realizes our true condition and tells us, this is how you really are, so you better listen to me so that when I come, I will be able to receive you because I love you so much, I want you to come with me into the kingdom. So that's the setting of the stage for this message to the Laodicean church. And let's turn to Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So here is the title of Jesus to the Laodicean church. He's the Amen. That's the benediction. This is the last message to the last church. He is a faith or the faithful and true witness. He's going to give an honest account, an honest testimony. And it says he's the beginning of the creation of God. In other words, Jesus is the creator. And the reason why Jesus is identifying himself not only as the amen, or the ending, the final message, not only as the faithful and true witness, but also as the creator, because he wants Laodicea to realize that you are the church that is connected to the judgment hour, and it just so happens in the first angel's message of Revelation 14 that creation is connected to the judgment hour message. Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him who made heaven, earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. So the message of Laodicea is being connected to the fact that the Laodicean church is to be proclaiming the three angels' messages, which includes the first angel's message of the judgment hour and pointing out the fact that God is the creator. Now, do you realize in Revelation 14, when the judgment hour and creation is connected to each other, do you know where the creation account is being quoted from in the Old Testament? When it says, worship him that made heaven, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters? That's coming from the fourth commandment of Exodus chapter 20. So what's the significance of that? In the first angel's message, the Sabbath message is being connected to creation and to the judgment hour. And when Jesus says that he is the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, he is saying, Laodicea, you are a judged people, the church of the judgment hour, and it has been given to you to proclaim a judgment hour message that points people to God as the creator and that the seventh day Sabbath is a weekly reminder of God's creative power. And it just so happens that in the Sabbath message is a connection to the message of salvation and of righteousness by faith that Laodicea needs. Because the Sabbath in Genesis chapter 2, God says that you may know that I am the Lord that sanctify you. Or that 
And, and we also see that in Ezekiel chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, a connection to the Sabbath and sanctification. So Laodicea, what they need, they need a message from a faithful and true witness who will tell them this is what you are really like. And they will be reminded that the messenger is the creator who is reminding them that they are living in the judgment hour and that they are to proclaim the Sabbath message in connection with creation and the judgment hour because all of those things together prepare us to stand in the judgment. So just from the title of Jesus to the Laodicean church, you get some kind of an idea of what this message is going to be like. Now, let's go on to the very next verse. So here's the introduction. This is the title. What does Jesus say to Laodicea? Verse 15, I know your works. Now, this is interesting to me because we, uh, we understand from salvation that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Clearly, Scripture teaches that you can't work your way to heaven, and we're all in agreement in that. Yet, Jesus seems to be interested in our works. Because in, elsewhere in Scripture, that it says we will be judged by our works. So works don't save us, but here's the thing. If you're going around killing people, sleeping around, stealing and whatever, are you going to be found faithful in the kingdom? No. So works are an identifying characteristic of if we've given our life to the Lord. Not that we're doing it to save ourselves, but Jesus happens to be interested in our works. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot, I would thou wert cold or hot. Now, so far it's like, okay, well, <clears throat> it could be better, but it's, you know, we're not too hot, we're not too cold. We just need to kind of get a little bit more on fire for the Lord. We'll, we'll, we'll work on it. But let's keep going here. Verse 16, So then, because you are lukewarm... And neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now, the lukewarm part. History tells us that Laodicea received its source of water from some springs up in the hills above the town. These were very hot springs. The water was very hot. But by the time it came down the mountain into the town, the water had become lukewarm. And Jesus is making an application to his last day judgment, our church. He's saying, you're not too hot, you're not too cold, you're actually lukewarm. And when I drink your lukewarm tasting water, it makes me want to vomit. Because the word in the King James is a more kosher spew thee out of your mouth. That's what it really means is I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because the taste in the mouth to Jesus, our Lord and Savior, makes him want to throw up. Have you ever thought about the fact that we as God's last day people are in such a spiritual condition that it makes Jesus want to throw up? Now, fortunately, the message doesn't end here. So stay to the end. Don't walk out and leave. But that's kind of almost discouraging to realize, oh man, I have become so lethargic, just sleeping along that it makes Jesus want to throw up. And in fact, to connect to our message this morning, and I left this quote out from, from our message this morning. This is from Review and Herald, August 19, 1890, which I read from this morning. Ellen White says in paragraph 10, the state of the church represented by the foolish virgins is also spoken of as the Laodicean state. So the foolish virgins in the parable that we talked about this morning represents the Laodicean state, which is interesting because there's 10 virgins that are sleeping, but only five are foolish, therefore only five are Laodicean. So not everybody in the church is Laodicean. But we saw what the difference was between the wise and the foolish virgins this morning. The foolish virgins have a regard for the truth. Ellen White says they are not hypocrites. They love the truth, but they have not been changed by it. 
They have a profession. They come to church. They like to be around others who proclaim the message. But as Ellen White says, they have not fallen on the rock Christ Jesus and been broken. They have not yet become a living sacrifice. Now, before I go any farther... Let me just look at this. I'm going to read to you a very interesting statement from Early Writings, page 270, which connects very interestingly, because right now what we've seen so far <clears throat> is that God's last day judgment hour church is receiving a message from Christ that tells them that their condition, they're not too hot, they're not too cold, they're lukewarm, it makes them want to throw up. Now notice what Ellen White says about the Laodicean message. This is Early Writings, page 270. I asked the meaning of the shaking I had seen and was shown that it would be caused by the straight testimony called forth by the counsel of the true witness to the Laodiceans. So notice, this message in Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14, it's the straight testimony from the true witness, Jesus Christ. When it is received the way it's designed to be received, it's going to cause a shaking among God's people. So when you study Revelation 3, 14 through 22, this is the message that will bring the shaking to Adventism, which it is coming. The wheat and the tares are going to grow together into the harvest, and then the wheat and the tares will be separated. Continuing on, this will have its effect upon the heart of the receiver and will lead him to exalt the standard and pour forth the straight truth. So some, as they hear the message from Jesus, the true witness, they will receive the message and they will go out, exalt the standard, and pour forth the straight truth. Continuing, some will not bear the straight testimony. They will rise up against it, and this is what will cause the shaking among God's people. In other words, when this message comes to the church the way God designs for it to come to the church, there are going to be some in the church that will stand up and say, Don't tell me this. I don't want to hear it. I like my lukewarm condition. Don't tell me that I am in a condition that is not pleasing to God. I don't want to hear that. And yet the others in the church will be saying, but this is a message from the Lord. This is our condition. We want to be ready for Jesus to come. This is the message of the hour. And this is what will cause a shaking in the church. And then continuing on, I saw that the testimony of the true witness has not been half-heeded. The solemn testimony upon which the destiny of the church hangs has been lightly esteemed, if not entirely disregarded. The testimony must work deep repentance. All who truly receive it will obey it and be purified. And you know the, word, the, the concept of deep repentance? That is an element that as I travel around the church throughout North America and even around the world, deep repentance is often lacking. A form of godliness often is present without the power. But the deep repentance, a repentance that will not be repented of, that is what brings power into the lives of God's people. Becoming a living sacrifice, surrendering all on the altar to the Lord. Now, let me show you something else that's very interesting. So this message is going to bring a shaking to God's church at some time. Now, why do, you, why do you think that might be? Well, I want to quote to you from a survey that was done. And unfortunately, I don't have the actual um, survey um, source, but I, I can at least tell you some of the numbers. And this was a letter written into the Adventist Review by a man by the name of Jan Doward, who was an author of several books years ago. And he was commenting about certain results of this survey. And here's what some of the, there were several questions and I'm just gonna talk about four questions that were asked. Number one, do you have an intimate relationship with Jesus? And by the way, this is a survey among Seventh-day Adventists. Number one, do you have an intimate relationship with Jesus? Number two, do you have assurance of eternal life? 
Number three, do you, just, do you study the Bible daily? And number four, do you have family worship? Those sound like good questions, right? So intimate relationship with Jesus, assurance of salvation, studying the Bible every day, family worship every day. Okay, so let's get to the numbers. 63% of Seventh-day Adventists surveyed said that they have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, praise the Lord for 63%. That's a D. But um, at least 63%, you know, what the other 37% don't have an intimate relationship with Jesus. But seriously, <laughs> that's where it all starts is the intimate relationship with the Lord. I mean, all the theory of, of the gospel and prophecy, if, you don't, if you're not connected to the Lord, like we said earlier today, you'll be like the foolish virgin with a lamp without the oil. Intimate relationship with Jesus, 63%. Okay, well, now how about assurance of salvation? 73%. So somehow there's 10% who don't have an intimate relationship, who still have assurance, and we're still missing 27% of the church who, you know, don't have that assurance. But So 63% um, have an intimate relationship. 73% have assurance of salvation. Now let's get to studying the Bible every day, which, by the way, studying the Bible every day is how you connect intimately with the Lord, right? So what do you think the numbers are for studying the Bible and family worship? So studying the Bible every day, 34%. Family worship, 33%. Something went wrong here. 63%, yes, I have a deep, intimate relationship with Jesus, yet only 34% spend time with him every day. 73%, yes, I am going to heaven, but again, one-third only spend time with him every day. Listen, if you're going to get married to someone and you never spend time with them, but you're saying, oh yes, I have a great relationship. I can't wait to get married. I talk to them once a week for maybe a few minutes and I'm distracted even during the time that I'm talking to them. That's not a good sign of a good marriage to come. And how can we expect to enjoy spending time with the Lord throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity if we aren't even spending time with him now? So that survey was, was rather interesting, and it fits with the description that Jesus gives of his last day church, that we are neither hot nor cold. We're not on fire, but we have a form of godliness. We at least show up to church, so we make a profession of showing interest in spiritual things. Yet, at the end of the day, we're not spending the time to have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, I know your works. You're not on fire. You're lukewarm. It's nauseating to me, and I feel like throwing up. And notice what Jesus says then, continuing on in verse 17. Because you say I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So here's what Laodicea is saying about itself. Jesus just says, I know your works. You're not hot. You're not cold. You're lukewarm. It's nauseating to me. But Laodicea is saying, I am rich. I have everything I need. I am increased with goods. I don't need anything else. Now, prophetically speaking... Our Seventh-day Adventists saying, man, we are so loaded with the, with the money of this earth, we don't really care about the Lord. There might be a few people like that, maybe even here in Bermuda, and certainly where I come from in the United States, where money has become the main thing, and so that prevents them from having a close connection with God. But I would submit to you that this is speaking in terms spiritually. Laodicea says, we are rich and increased with goods. We don't need anything. And Jesus is actually saying, you are wretched, miserable, poor. So he's saying, you're the opposite of what you say you are. You say you're rich, but you're actually wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, 
what does it mean to be rich? Let me show you a verse in 1 Peter chapter 1, which, by the way, before we go there, Revelation 3.18, the first thing in the remedy, Jesus says, I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire that you may be rich. So we're talking spiritually here. You see that? So Laodicea says, we're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And Jesus says, actually, you're poor. And in order for you to be rich, you need to buy gold tried in the fire. So you see what we're talking about here? Does that make sense? Okay, so what's this gold tried in the fire? Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. And this should be a familiar verse. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. What does Peter compare gold tried in the fire to? The trial of your faith. Now, Laodicea apparently wants to have a faith experience that doesn't go along with having gold tried in the fire, of going through the trials of life and coming out purified through those trials. Laodicea seemingly wants to have a faith experience that is easy, so to speak, that is trial-free, and that once you accept Christ, everything just goes great and wonderful and you don't have to worry about anything. That's one element. But here's the thing. If Jesus says you need to buy gold tried in the fire to be rich, and he says, actually, you are poor. Jesus is then saying, you lack gold. And in 1 Peter, the gold is connected to the trial of your faith. Now, here's what's fascinating. Laodicea says, we are rich. We have the spiritual richness that is required to get us to the kingdom of heaven. We don't need anything else. We have faith. Because 1 Peter 1.7 connects gold to faith. And if you think that you're rich, then you would have gold spiritually speaking. So Laodicea thinks that it's rich, and Jesus says, no, you're not rich. You need the gold tried in the fire to be rich in order to have faith. And Laodicea is saying, no, 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 we are rich. We have the gold. We have the faith. Laodicea is saying, we are rich and increased with goods. We have the spiritual richness. We have the spiritual faith that saves us. We don't need anything else, and we don't want to hear anything else. And so when this message is received by the church, where Jesus says, you know what, you have a faith problem. You think you have saving faith. You think you have righteousness by faith. But in reality, you are poor because you don't have saving faith. And you need to have gold tried in the fire where you go through the trials of life and learn to trust me through those experiences in order to enter into an experience of gold, spiritual gold. And Laodicea says, don't tell me that. We don't want to hear that, Jesus. We like the assurance that we have, even though we're not studying the Bible. We're not bringing our family to the worship altar to spend time with you. We don't really know what the Bible says. We just want to believe that you will love us and cover us, even if we're not changed. Don't tell us that we are poor spiritually. That's what brings a shaking to the church. Because seriously, if you think that you can have saving faith while you sit back unconverted, live the good life without surrendering your life to Jesus, when he comes knocking on the door of your heart and says, hey, you know what? You're, you're lacking saving faith. That could be upsetting if you think that you were in a good condition. And if you want to know, just to be sure, how accurate the diagnosis that Jesus gives as the great physician to the Laodicean church is. Notice the adjectives he uses to describe the Laodicean church at the end of verse 17. 
wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And by the way, we're getting to the end of the bad news. We'll just get through the, the wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, and then we'll get on to the good news. You know, as a physician, you have to give the bad news first before the good news comes. You tell them the condition, and then you tell them, here's the treatment plan, and after the treatment plan, you hope for the, uh, you hope for the good result. But here's the thing. When, when you take Jesus' treatment plan, you know it's going to work. I can't always guarantee that to the patients that I give my treatment plan to you because we're just talking about human things and earthly things and we do our best. But this is an, a heavenly treatment plan that is guaranteed to work. So just so you know, the good news is, is on its way, but we have to get through the diagnosis to get to the treatment. So we're getting there. Okay. Jesus says that Laodicea is wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The word wretched comes from the Greek word teleiparos. And it's found in two places in all of Scripture, in the Greek and the English. It's found here in Rome, Revelation 3.17 and in one other place. Where else in Scripture is the word wretched found? Romans 7. O wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Now, who is this wretched man in Romans 7? Well, in verse 14 of Romans chapter 7, Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. And, you know, many Christians, and sometimes I've even heard Seventh-day Adventists say, see, this is Paul's experience in the present tense. Therefore, this describes Paul's victorious Christian experience. But that's actually not true. Paul says in Romans 7, verse 14, I am carnal, sold under sin. If you are sold under under something, what are you? You are a slave. If you are sold under sin, you are a slave to sin. And in Romans chapter 6, Paul makes it very clear you are either slaves to righteousness or slaves to sin. And Paul then in Romans 7 says, if you want to know what it's like to be a slave to sin, let me tell you what it's like. And in verse 15 of Romans 7, he says, for the good that I would, I do not. And then he says, for that which I would not, that's what I do. That's the experience of a slave. Slaves don't do what they want to do, and they do what they don't want to do. And Paul is saying a wretched experience is to do the things you don't want to do and to not do the things that you want to do. Now, it is true in 1 John 1.9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in 1 John 2 verse 1, it says, if any man sin, we have an advocate and we can come boldly to the throne of grace and we will receive forgiveness. But realize that is God's plan B. He doesn't want us to fall and he's not planning for us to sin habitually over and over and over again. Yet the experience of Romans 7 says, well, I have a desire, I see that the law of God is good, I like that God's law is there, but I don't have the power to keep the law. Oh, wretched man that I am, the good that I would, I don't do, the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. That's just the way it is, oh well. That's slavery to sin. Because sin, the old man of sin that Romans 6 says should be crucified, has not been crucified. It's still alive. You have not become a living sacrifice. And so your life is controlled by the old man of sin, your slave master. And what Jesus is saying to Laodicea, he is saying, you think you have saving faith, but your problem is you are still captive to sin. You have the Romans 7 experience. And sometimes I get a little bit concerned when I hear Adventists say, well, Paul had the experience in Romans 7, and that's just the way it's going to be for me until Jesus comes. Yet Scripture clearly teaches that God is able to keep us from falling. Through his grace and through his power, he can keep us from doing the things we don't want to do. And, do, and, and, and you get the point. If there's one sin in your life that you can't get the victory over and you're saying it's just never going to happen, you are saying that the devil is stronger than God in that area of your life. And by the grace of God, Scripture teaches that God is more powerful than the devil. 
And so here's Laodicea's problem on this point. Laodicea has the experience of Romans 7 and doesn't realize that that's a problem. Laodicea says, well, we're just like Paul. We do the things we don't want to do. We don't do the things we want to do, but that's the way Paul was. That's the way we are. We must have the gospel if Paul had the gospel, and we're just kind of going on our way to heaven. And Jesus is saying, that experience, that condition, causes me to be nauseated. And then the next adjective, after wretched, is miserable. You know, for Jesus to say that we are miserable is almost disheartening. But again, fortunately, the good news and the remedy follows right after this. For Jesus to say that his last day church is in a miserable condition is concerning. But here's the thing. This is the faithful and true account, the testimony from Jesus himself. So if Jesus is saying it, it must be true. Now, the, the word for miserable, it's found in the Greek in one other place, just like in Rome, uh, as the word wretched was. It's the Greek word eleinos. And do you know where the other place in Scripture the word miserable is found? It's also in the writings of Paul. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19. And this one is, is kind of hard to take. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. And here the Apostle Paul says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Now, what's Paul talking about? He was talking about a teaching that was in the church that said there was no resurrection of the dead. So in other words, you would be a faithful Christian during your life here on this earth, but you're never going to be resurrected. That's just, you live for this life to be faithful for Christ, and that's it. And Paul's response to that is, if you're living for Christ in this life, and that you only have hope for him in the life that you are living now, you are of all men most miserable. But that's not the only application of what Paul is saying here. To be miserable would not only to be living this life truly, truly being faithful and truly thinking that Jesus was going to take you to an eternal kingdom, you would also be miserable if you had a false hope in Christ in a different way. Let's, because we know that Jesus really is coming again and that the dead will be resurrected, and that there will be a life after this life here on this earth. Amen? Amen? And just as it would be miserable if there really was no eternal life afterwards, and you were thinking that you were living for Christ in the present life, it would also be miserable to think that your Christian experience was taking you on your way to heaven, when in reality it was not. And so when Paul says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable, Jesus is saying, you are in a miserable condition because you think you have spiritual saving faith. You say you are rich and increased with goods. You think you have saving faith. But in reality, your condition would prevent you from living with me eternally. And so if you stay that way, you will be of all men most miserable because you think you have been living for the Lord your entire life. So this is a straight message from Jesus himself. And you can see then why Ellen White would say that when this message comes to the church, it's going to cause a shaking because there will be a group of people that will say, thank you, Jesus, for loving me so much that you've shown me my true condition so that I can surrender my life to you fully and completely and receive the righteousness by faith that you want to give to me. And others are going to say, no, 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 I don't want want to hear this message. I want to continue my Romans 7 experience and just be covered by grace and not change my life at all. And then continuing on in Revelation chapter 3, we see that the Laodicean church is poor, so therefore they are not rich, therefore they do not have faith. They are blind, 
So they don't see, we, I, I should say we, <laughs> because we need to apply it to who we are. We don't see how we really are. And the worst thing, the last thing, we are naked. So we have a bunch of spiritually naked people walking around, and we're all blind, and we don't realize that all of us are naked. Now here's the thing. If you are naked, spiritually speaking, are you clothed with the righteousness of Christ? No, you are not. Jesus is saying to the Laodicean church, you think you are rich, you think you have gold tried in the fire, you think you have saving faith, you think you have righteousness by faith, but in reality you don't have my righteousness, in reality you are spiritually naked. And so Laodicea has a problem. Laodicea thinks that it is in a spiritually acceptable condition waiting for Jesus to come in the clouds of heaven. And Jesus is saying to his Laodicean church, wake up, church of the judgment hour. I am giving you a faithful and true account of your spiritual condition. Because so many times, Seventh-day Adventists, if you go around the world, the thing that we focus on is assurance of salvation rather than living our lives to the honor and glory of God's name. So we ask questions like, well, is this a salvational issue? Well, if it's not a salvational issue, then what's the big deal with lowering the standard? And so we look at issues not from the view the way God would have us look at as to what would best glorify and honor God's name, and we look at it through the prism of like, well, as long as I don't lose my salvation, I guess it's okay. And so the standard that God has given to this church has over the years been lowered and lowered and lowered and lowered so that where the standard once used to be up here, in many cases and in many times, and I can't speak for this church here, but I'm just talking about in general, you had a standard that was way up here, clearly uh, spelled out in the Bible, and now we're down here, because we say it's not a salvational issue. And at the end of the day, we've lost our vision, spiritually speaking, for what God has spoken of. Listen, if, if something's addressed in the Bible, it's because it pertains to our salvation. And again, you can't work your way to heaven, but if you're going to be fully the Lord's, you're going to be a living sacrifice. You're going to live the health message. You're not, you're not going to consult your taste. If the Lord has given us counsel about the way we should eat, we're going to be a living sacrifice. If the Lord has given us counsel about the way we should dress, we're not going to consult our taste. We're going to follow what the Bible says. We're going to be a living sacrifice. Yet Laodicea says, you know what? We're tired of all these standards. We're tired of all these reforms. We just need love and grace, and we'll just go on our way until Jesus comes, and the standard may be lowered, but at least we're more accepting and loving of everyone. And listen, we need to be loving and accepting of everyone. This is not saying that we're not. We're gonna, but here's the thing, when you have the love of Jesus in your heart that's, and you've been transformed so that you hold the Bible standard high, you're not going to turn people away and they're not going to come to you saying, oh man, that person is judgmental. Look, did, did Jesus may, come across as being judgmental and mean? No. But did he hold the standard high? Absolutely. And we can be like that too. But, and on the flip side of the equation, you can have people... Now, so far, I've been hitting maybe a more liberal way of thinking, if you want to use that term. But there can be conservative-minded people who say, we know the truth. We've figured out what the Bible says, and this is how you do it. We must be on the right way to heaven because we have the truth all figured out, and yet the love of Christ is missing. And so, at the end of the day, whether you're disregarding Scripture and just lowering the standard, or if you know what the scripture says, but it's apart from the love of Christ, either way can lead you to think that you are spiritually rich and in reality be lacking the righteousness of Christ. Okay. So, let's get to the good news now. Picking it up in verse 18, Jesus has a remedy for us. Jesus says, you know, it's pretty bad. You make me want to throw up. You're wretched. You have the experience of Romans 7 and think it's okay. And actually, and again, you could be liberal and have the experience of Romans 7 and think it's okay. You could be conservative and know what's right and still have the experience of Romans 7. It could go, you know, you know what's right, but you're not doing it. 
You have the experience of Romans 7. You have hope in this life only. You don't have faith. You're blind. You're naked. And so here's what Jesus says. Look, it's, it, it can get better. You don't have to stay this way. You, you can come out of this poor spiritual condition. And so what's the remedy? Verse 18. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. Now we saw that in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 7. It's the trial of your faith. So in, uh, in order to receive saving faith, righteousness by faith, Jesus is saying, allow me to be your guide, your leader through the trials of life so that when those trials come, you learn to look unto me as the author and the finisher of your faith and that you trust in me no matter what happens so that when you come through those trials, your faith is strengthened and your life is purified. Don't be like the children of Israel who they go through the Red Sea. The water is parted. They see with their own eyes the water parted from side to side. They get through that water and then in their first testing experience, they come to a little body of water and they drink it and it's bitter. And they're like, oh, I guess God led us out to die in the wilderness. He might have opened up the Red Sea, but he led me to die to drink this bitter water, as opposed to having the type of faith that should have been strengthened by passing through the Red Sea. They're boxed in, the Red Sea's in front of them, the Egyptian army's behind them, there's no way out, they're going to die. And listen, God is going to put us in those experiences time and time again until he can prove us that we will trust in him. And here's the thing, sometimes we'll come to church and we're praising the Lord for the powerful message and we're going to go home and we're going to live a life of powerful faith and on the way home we get a flat tire and we're ready to question our Christian experience. Just like the children of Israel. And Jesus says, I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire. Life isn't always fun, so to speak. It's, it can always be joyful, but it's not always fun. I mean, is it fun when you lose a job? Is it fun when a loved one dies? No, absolutely not. And the Lord weeps with us during our times of sorrow. But he doesn't say it's okay during those times to just throw everything out and say, well, I'm going to question my faith in God. No, you, you, you can be sorrowful, but you can say, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. And that's the type of experience that God is looking for in his last day people. But so many times that we're so superficial and so shallow and we put on our nice clothes and we come to church and, oh, hi, are you, how are you? Happy Sabbath. But when the trials of life come, we're snapping at our wife. We're losing our temper. We're questioning if God is really leading us. And if people could really see what we were like at home, they would be like, oh, wow, my, what's going on? And Jesus is saying, buy that gold tried in the fire. Allow yourself to be purified, to trust in me. And Ellen White actually says that this gold tried in the fire is not only faith, it's also love. We need love. That the love of God will shine forth through our lives. That Yes, we trust in him. Yes, we believe in him. And it's his love that transforms our hearts so that when those trials come, we, can, when we will react the way Jesus would have us react. Not only do we buy gold tried in the fire, that's faith and love, we also buy white raiment that we may be clothed. In other words, we buy the righteousness of Jesus Christ that he offers to us as a gift. So Jesus is saying, you need my righteousness. And so many times, Laodicea has a mentality of saying, Jesus, see my filthy rags? Cover them. Yet in Zechariah chapter 3, Joshua the high priest is standing before the angel, and the command is given, take off the filthy garments and put on the righteousness. Let's stop trying to wear our filthy rags underneath the, the garment of Christ's righteousness. That's like Romans 13, 14 that says, put you on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision to fulfill the lust of the flesh. When we try to put Jesus on and fulfill the lust of the flesh, we are trying to say, Jesus, can I keep my gar dirty garments on and you just cover me? And Jesus is saying, look, I love you so much that I want to clean your life up. Let me take the garments of filth off and let me cover you with my pure righteousness that has not one iota of human devising in it. It's not ours at all. It is 100% Jesus Christ. 
that in order for us to clothe us, we need to be willing to surrender and to have those filthy garments taken away. And so he says, buy the white raiment that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness do not appear and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So we need spiritual discernment. Now I want to read an interesting statement to you about the righteousness of Christ. This is from Christ's Object Lessons, page 311 and 312. This robe woven in the loom of heaven has in it not one thread of human devising. Christ in his humanity wrought out a perfect character, and this character he offers to impart to us. All our righteousness are as filthy rags. And she's quoting scripture there. And then continuing. By his perfect obedience, he has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. And continuing. When we submit ourselves to Christ, that would be a living sacrifice. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to, to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. Did you hear that? To be clothed with the garment of his righteousness means that we submit ourselves to Christ. Our heart is united with the heart of Christ. Our mind becomes one with his mind. It's like the verse that we, from our theme for this week, we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our minds become one with his mind. Our thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. That's what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. It's not the experience of Romans 7. It's being clothed with his righteousness so that we live his life. And then verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. You realize that Jesus gives this message to us because he loves us so much? Aren't you thankful that Jesus loves us so much that he is willing to truthfully tell us what our condition is? Because, you know, humanly speaking, we don't like to step on people's toes. Humanly speaking, if we see something that we know is clearly wrong in a brother or sister, and I mean, we're not talking about being judgmental, but you know, the person, they've gone back to drinking alcohol or smoking cigarettes or whatever it may be, and there's something that we know is wrong, our human tendency is to not want to confront them and say, you know what, Jesus has something better. If, if we would just follow our own human devisings. But through the grace and the power of Christ, as we're followers of him, we will, through his grace, be able to help those who need his saving grace. And Jesus is making it very clear to us that we as his last day judgment hour church need to be chastened. He is chastening and rebuking us because he loves us. And there is a response that is required on our part. Does it say be half-hearted and repent? It's like, oh man, I guess, I, I guess I've just kind of not been following the Lord. Oh, I'll, tr I'll try to do better. Is that what the response is supposed to be? No, the response, as we see Jesus, who is our Savior, who died on the cross for us, who gave up everything, who risked everything to come down and die for us on this earth, as we see him hanging on the cross for us, and now we see his eyes piercing through our very soul as he identifies to us our true condition. We have a heart response that zealously repents and we say we want to turn away from this life of sin that we have been stuck in and we want to follow the Lord Jesus with all of our hearts. And you know, Jesus is not doing this in a pushy way. Verse 20 identifies how Jesus is giving this message to us. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And he doesn't say, And I will barge my way through and make you do it the way I want you to. And sometimes we as humans try to do that. We try to change people because we know what they need. And we don't let Jesus have the opportunity to come in. I mean, all we can do is put the message out there let the Holy Spirit prompt and convict the conscience. But sometimes 
we have to let the Lord do the work. But notice, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus is standing on the door of our hearts to Laodicea, and he is knocking. And you know what? If Jesus is standing at the door of Laodicea and knocking, do you realize what that means about Jesus with respect to his relationship to Laodicea? Jesus is not inside. Jesus is outside. And yet, so many times we talk about, oh, as long as we just have a relationship with Jesus, everything will be okay. And yet Jesus is saying, I agree, I need a relationship with you, but the problem is you haven't let me come in. You like to talk about me, you like to say that you're covered by my righteousness, but in reality you've never let me come into your heart to have that relationship in the very first place. And Jesus is saying, behold, I stand at the door and knock, let me come in. And he's saying, if any man will, I will come in. If you choose to let Jesus come in, he will come in, but he will never force his way in. And yet it's startling that to God's last day, judgment hour church, the church that is supposed to be proclaiming the judgment hour message, the three angels messages, Jesus is saying, you have a big problem. You haven't even let me come into your heart. And because you haven't let me come into your heart, you think you're okay because you talk about me. You're around people who talk about me, but you've never let me come in. So you think you're spiritually rich, but you really aren't. You're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You need to allow yourself to buy the gold tried in the fire, to receive my righteousness, to, to buy the ISAF so that you can see, and most importantly, to open the door of your heart to let me come in. And you know what happens when we let Jesus come in? Verse 21 happens. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. Do you realize that Jesus overcame? And 1 John 5, 4 says, this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So Jesus overcame by faith. And when we let Jesus come in, we overcome as he overcame through the faith that he overcame. That's the faith of Jesus. That's the third angel's message. Laodicea needs the third angel's message. And that connects to Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. That means we've let him come in. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of Jesus. Amen. It's the faith of the Son of God, but it's the faith of Jesus. The third angel's message. Laodicea needs the third angel's message. That's what we are lacking in. We are supposed to be proclaiming the third angel's message, but in order to do so, we need to let Jesus come in. Now, as I close, I'm going to read a couple of quotes from Ellen White that kind of tie it all together. Early Writings, page 271. You remember we read Early Writings 270 that said that this message called forth by the straight testimony from the, from the true witness would bring a shaking. Well, there's, some, there's an end of the story, so to speak, here in the very next page. Ellen White says, I heard those clothed with the armor speak forth the truth with great power. It had effect. I asked what had made this great change. An angel answered, it is the latter rain, the refreshing from the presence of the Lord, the loud cry of the third angel. Do you realize that those who receive the rebuke and chastening of the Lord in the Laodicean message will receive the outpouring of the latter rain to go forth and give the loud cry of the third angel? That this message is not just any other message to any other church. This message from the faithful and true witness, it's so important that Jesus took it upon himself to tell us our condition so that we could receive the message, so that he could pour out his latter rain power, so that we could go out and give the final message to the lost and dying world around us. But we cannot give that message if we're stuck in our Laodicean condition. And then there's one other statement. This is from Testimonies, Volume 1, page 187, and this connects to overcoming as Jesus overcame. Those who come up to every point and stand every test and overcome, be the price what it may, have heeded the counsel of the true witness, and they will receive the latter rain and thus be fitted for translation. 
Do you realize that the message in Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22, is a message designed by Jesus, the true witness, to fit us for translation? This is a translation message. We're not just talking about a message to help us to be nicer to people, and that's good. This is a message that is designed to bring a termination to the great controversy. To bring an end to this world of sin and suffering. And Jesus looks at his last day church and he's wanting to come back. He's wanting to pour out his latter rain. He's wanting to fit a people for translation. And yet he sees a group of people who are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And you know what? Jesus, if he was like any one of us, he would give us, give up on us. He'd kind of kick us down the road and say, get out of here, you losers. What's so wrong with you? But Jesus isn't like that. Jesus is saying, you know what? I see something very valuable in you. I see in you, if you allow yourself to be like gold tried in the fire, you are going to come out purified. You are going to be like me. You're going to have the faith that I have. I'm going to come into your heart, and I am going to use you, you who have been dead in trespasses and sins, and I am going to use you as a shining testament to the world around us of what I can do through my grace. When I take a sinner, I save them by grace. I transform them through my power so that at the end of time, the onlooker universe will say, wow, did you see Norman McNulty? Did you see pastor? Did you see brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so? They were dead in trespasses and sins, and they're going around with the power of the Holy Spirit. They look just like Jesus now. They are giving a message that is preparing a lost and dying world for the coming of the Lord, and they are part of the fulfillment of Revelation 18, where the earth is lightened with the glory of God. That is the design that God has for his Laodicean lukewarm church. You see, God doesn't want to throw us up out of his mouth. God wants to pour out the latter rain upon us. God has a special plan for Laodicea. And he knew that in the last days of earth's history, the devil would try to prevent God's last day people from doing the work that God has given us to do by getting us to fall asleep spiritually, so to speak, to think that we can have a form of godliness without the power, to think that we can just live how we please and that God will still cover us and take us as we are, even though we've been staying in the same spiritual condition, sometimes in some cases perhaps for many years. And yet when we allow the Lord to speak through all the clutter in our lives, when we turn on off the TV, the radio, and stop doing all these other things that have nothing to do with preparing us for the kingdom, and we just allow the Lord to speak to us through that still, small voice. As we come to meetings like this, we will hear the Lord showing us, this is your condition. I love you. Wake up. Repent. Let me come in. Because you see, from God's last day, Judgment Hour Church, the Laodicean Church, he is going to bring the 144,000 who through the power and grace of the Holy Spirit will give the three angels' messages to the world. So we have a work to do. And it's very simple. Surrender your heart to Jesus. Let him come in every day. Be a living sacrifice. It's your reasonable service. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And be someone that lives the way Jesus lived here on this earth. Come up to every point. Pass every test. Overcome be the price what it may. Keep looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, so that when he comes, you will be found faithful, and there will be many stars on your crown as well. If you want to be part of the last day group of people who says, you know what? I've heard Jesus knocking on the door of my heart tonight. I thought that I was rich and increased with goods and that I was just perfectly fine the way I am. And I realized that there's areas in my life that I haven't surrendered to Jesus yet. I've maybe heard him knocking on the door of my heart and I've said, oh, it's okay, Jesus. I'll keep this part of my heart for myself. And now you're saying, you know what? Jesus is coming back with more force and more clarity in a loving way. And he's showing me that he has something so much better than to stay enslaved to sin. And you're saying, you know what? I want that. I want to be a powerful force for the Lord. I want to be part of his closing work here on this earth. And you're saying, I'm tired of being lukewarm. I want to be on fire for the Lord. I would invite you to stand with me at this time as we have a closing prayer.
Father in heaven, I thank you for all who are standing. We thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die for us, that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus to die and that he's interceding on our behalf in heaven right now and he's knocking on the door of our hearts even now saying, let me come in. Lord, I pray that we would allow Jesus to come into our hearts every day, every moment of every day, and that our lives would be a demonstration of his love, his grace, his power, and that we would learn through the trials of life to trust in you. Forgive us for being lukewarm, for thinking that we were okay. But we thank you, Lord, that you are a merciful God, a forgiving God, a loving God, and a transforming God. Continue to be with us, and may, we, may it be said of us that we came up to every point. We passed every test. We overcame whatever the price was, and that we let Jesus come into our hearts. And may it be very soon that each one of us here would be fitted for translation and that we would have given the loud cry of the third angel. Thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to do this work at this time of Earth's history and be with us throughout the rest of this week, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tomorrow night, the title of the message is The Altar of Abraham's Sacrifice. Abraham is the father of the faithful, and you may be saying, well, you've been talking about having righteousness by faith and following Jesus, but you know, we're going to get into some tangible examples of Bible characters who show us how to live by faith, how to be transformed, how to be living sacrifices, and the very first character that we're going to look at is Abraham, the father of the faithful. You're not going to want to miss that. We're going to go through and make end-time applications to God's last day people, so we'll look forward to seeing you tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.